0: Good morning, and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. It's a beautiful sunny morning here, and here to ruin it for you is Alex Good morning, Alex. <laughs> nice, nice to be introduced
1: as the morning ruiner, isn't she? Yes.
0: Welcome to morning ruination with Alex <laughs> So we've set up what's going to happen in the uh, forthcoming seven days, and to absolutely nobody's surprise, uh, the end of lockdown in England is being delayed. It was data versus dates, and in the end, the winner was Delta, Uh, Amongst other things, (laughs) nightclubs are going to stay closed. People will be told to stay working from home. And 19th of July could be the new 21st of June. It's probably going to be four weeks, could be two. What does all this mean for
1: Boris Johnson, Alex? Um, It means a lot of difficulty. um, Despite their initial attempt to say it's all about data, not dates, they made this date uh, such a huge thing. Um, calling it uh, Independence Day, Deliberation Day and all of that Mm. stuff, Um, that it became quite a a bright shining line in most people's minds. They've been trying to row back from that really for the last 10 days, putting ministers out there on uh, uh, media saying, oh, it's not looking very good. And it's almost certain now that things will not fully unlock, although I will expect they will make a little bit of a move, so they will make some concessions in order to claim that we're just doing it slowly so that it's irreversible, that's their new um, line. Hmm. So I don't know, like reduce social distancing to
0: like 1.8 meters or something or make, make it I, possible to have you know, sit in an ice cream parlor or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, I think that the interesting political question is how can labor use it? Um, because hmm. if they don't use it, it will become just verdant ground for the far right, for GB news, for conspiracy theorists. So is there a way to claim that ground by linking it to government incompetence? Is there a way to say the reason we're not unlocking is because we weren't quick enough on taking action uh, on our borders, for instance, Um, because otherwise, you know, there's no way of preventing that becoming a huge bone of contention for a large number of people the question is, how do you channel that anger positively rather than allow the more chaotic elements of our politics to channel it destructively?
0: Yeah, it's really difficult to oppose, isn't it? Because if you, if, you, if you come out in any way uh, uh, criticizing the extension, of the lockdown, you're immediately characterised as, well, you want to unlock, don't you? It's, it's irresponsible Labour saying, unlock right now, or yeah. you know, could we characterise that way? Um, Johnson was still saying the decision hadn't made, had not yet been made yesterday on Sunday. Does anybody believe
1: him? They clearly had made this decision. Oh, they're, they're, Yeah, they're, they've been trying to brief it for quite a while now that it's not really happening.
0: Yeah, public support for lockdown continues to be high, much to the consternation of the GB news panel I was watching last night. Uh, you know, people do seem to understand that, that it is necessary, but we have been told to prepare for a Conservative rebellion in the Commons when it goes to a vote later this month, the extension, and it will have to go to a vote. What what has this, uh, this decision, which, as you say, was made some time ago and is only now being
1: confirmed, what has this done to Johnson's authority in the party? Look, what strikes me is that there is a really central issue in the people who are saying we have to learn to live with COVID, okay? It is, as a headline, that is a really sensible thing. The The notion that we have to develop ways, economic ways of coping with COVID rather than locking down the whole time, The problem is that what is under that headline for most of the people who support that side of things is the notion that learning to live with COVID means going back to exactly how things were before COVID, effectively ignoring it. And that just isn't possible. So what that side, that political side are demanding is simply not possible to deliver. Learning to live with COVID may mean that, for instance, we have to begin planning alternative hospitality business models with larger profit margins. It may be that this thing goes from variant to variant to variant or another pandemic emerges in six months' time. We just don't know. And learning to live with those things means basically pandemic proofing the economy so how do we do that that is the conversation very few people are having how do we make um you know uh uh, distribution chains and factories and uh, you know how do we make it possible for as many people as is fathomable to work from from home that is learning to live with covid Uh, You know, the situation that I saw on Saturday on the Tube, where I I was basically meant to visit a friend, I went to the Tube, waited for three trains, and then just turned around, went back home and said, sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it, was people sitting next to each other in packed trains, not wearing masks, really Hmm. in their hundreds. That's not learning to live with COVID. That's sort of facilitating more deaths from COVID
0: um the delta variant is now responsible for 90% of new infections yeah. 40% more transmissible than previous variants new cases have been rising steadily at to we're now about 6000 a day which is pretty much where we were before the second wave in october at the current rate of rate of increase if we did reopen uh, on 21st of june as planned you know at the current rate of interest, we'll be we'll we'd be on 15000 cases a day by 21st of june and yeah. then we would reopen yeah. the case for extending um the, the, the lockdown is is pretty much undeniable, isn't it? And yet we're still well the, it.
1: the the case for extending is undeniable, but not the case against reopening. and why do I say that? Because what has not been established yet is the link between the rise of cases and the rise in hospitalization and the rise in deaths. so because there, we because there's such a long tail to this thing, because there's such a long delay between um, being infected and people beginning to die, Um, we still don't have absolutely solid data in how this particular variant does, especially in the country that's been vaccinated to a large extent. So that's why it makes sense to delay. It makes sense to delay in order to look at that data, because... In general terms of virology, as I understand it, the general rule is that as viruses become more transmissible, they become less potent. That's usually how it works, and hmm. it may be that this is how it works here as well. So maybe through a combination of the vaccination program that's been going on and the virus becoming less um, lethal, we will see that that chain between transmission and hospitalisation and deaths has been broken, but we just don't have the data to say that definitively yet.
0: How do you expect all this to shake out this week then? I mean, we're going to get an announcement today that the um, the lockdown will be extended for two or possibly four weeks. What do you expect the consequences to be this week?
1: Um. I expect there will be demands for more more financial support, and I expect that more financial support will be announced. I think there will be a a long line of uh, rebellious MPs waiting to give interviews, walking around with pints of milk, etc., etc. But there is a danger that this thing tips over, and what I mean by that is that if more reasonable, and respected and reliable people begin to take the view that the lockdown should not be, um, or rather the lockdown release should not be uh, delayed, this thing could turn against the government very, very quickly. COVID was a huge theme of the G7. Uh, The headline there was that a
0: billion vaccine doses are going to go to poorer countries. Uh, It's going to come from donations and from COVAX.
1: Which is disappointing, and even that's not true, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there
0: was, there was, it's, you know, the headline is a billion, uh, but there's no timetable. Many of the announcements were not new. They'd been made yeah. already. Um, Gordon Brown's writing in the Guardian this morning that it, that the G7 fell devastatingly short on vaccines. Yeah. He says 11 billion doses are needed. So far, you know, fewer than 1% of sub-Saharan Africans have been vaccinated.
1: Is Gordon Brown right? It's a, it's a, a failure to deliver. Well, it is a failure to deliver. Um, and even the milli, the billion is not uh, real. Like if you add all the commitments, mm. um, uh, as they are in the communiqué, they add up to 170 million. <laughs> so mm. um, you know that's a big rounding up. Um, Did they let Matt Hancock there. write it? <laughs> it's a. It's been handcuffed. Yeah, I think the point is that. Um, the G7, while it represents a large chunk uh, of uh, world power, as it were, hmm. um, it doesn't include quite a lot of people. So I think in vaccination, as in um, things like climate change, as in things like uh, global tax uh, rates, for instance, the G7 is trying to make uh, bold initiative announce- announcements in order to nudge the rest of the world in the right direction. And we may see a little bit of movement on that. But, like I said, you know, it, 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 as we've discussed many, many times on this podcast, the underlying assumption. That is not being challenged is that there is a widespread view in the West that certain lives are worth more than other lives. And unless you begin to shake that assumption, then, you know, white, uh, Christian, um, Western, well to do people will not be okay with paying loads of extra tax to save sub-Saharan lives. Um, And that is the the devastatingly depressing um, reality that we are in. And that's what needs challenging.
0: Johnson's main goal in G7 was to kind of launch Global Britain onto the stage and also Mm. ingratiate himself to Joe Biden. Uh, How did he do on those two goals? Before we get into talking about Northern Ireland, which is going to be, I don't th- think
1: I don't think we can uh, I don't think we can assess how he did on those goals without talking about Northern Ireland. To be honest, moving away from you know the he said he said part of the Northern Ireland row, which I don't think is important actually, because I think the technical work that was going on, you know, before Friday to try and solve the the practical issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol will keep going on today. So I don't think it's at leader level yet, if mm. that makes sense. So I think the people trying to solve the, pra- the practical issues with stuff moving between GB and NI will keep doing their work this week and I suspect will come to some sort of fudge That means the EU gets 99% of what it wants, but the UK claims some sort of Pyrrhic victory. But what what the wider issue is, and I think very few people have picked up on it, is that the UK went into this G7 um, summit with a huge credibility problem, okay? Because Uh it is trying to back out of of an international treaty just fucking signed. It's actually (laughs) trying to back out of two treaties it signed, because the other one, of course, being the Good Friday Agreement. Um, The protocol is simply an expression of the indeterminate nature of the UK's obligations under the Good Friday Accords. And that, again, is something that's not said often enough, that the protocol is simply an expression of our obligations under that previous treaty. So it went into this with a credibility problem. It went into this with a lot of people in the White House administration believing that um, Johnson, to quote them, is an ideological um, surrogate child of Trump. And it came out of it with an even worse credibility problem. And the reason for that is that the G7 is meant to be um, a thing where announcements are made, a thing to demonstrate unity in the West, but also a safe space in which leaders can have meetings on the side, chin-wag with each other, and get to real solutions to brief a private conversation between two world leaders, because it suits you politically, I cannot tell you what a boo-boo that is in diplomatic terms. I cannot tell you how it will affect Johnson's relationships internationally going forward. Every time a leader has a private conversation with him, they will think, What of this is he going to brief out in order to gain domestic political advantage and screw me over? And that is going to be a huge, huge problem for him going forward. So I think he comes out of the G7 with the press in the UK claiming that he's done a terrific job and it was a tremendous success, when in fact... He comes out of it with even less credibility than he went into it, if that were possible.
0: It, it did look an awful lot, although, although you know, the goal was simply to generate those domestic headlines. So, I mean, Rob clutching his handbag when Macron said Northern Ireland is another country, I mean, technically he's right. He's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But we knew exactly what he meant. He meant a different physical location. And Rob jumps up and makes a, a big deal about... You know, I know. The idea, it's, I mean, it's, it's disgraceful. Offensive. It's yeah.
1: disgraceful to do that because, first of all, it doesn't take account of, you know, the the cultural and lang- language barriers. As a foreigner... I found it really really difficult when I first arrived in this country to understand the constitutional settlement to understand the difference between the you know nation and country which doesn't exist in Greece by the way but there are people who are born here who don't understand it it's quite complicated it's quite weird but but also you mix into that trying to translate this stuff in your head yeah. from your mother mm. tongue to another language, and it makes it makes it extra complicated. I have to tell you, in Greece, people refer, you know, people use English as shorthand for British to the consternation of that Scottish and of Welsh alone. people. You know, so so uh, okay, you know, he said the wrong thing. He was corrected. It was in a private conversation, and for Rob to come out the next morning and say. I cannot uh confirm that anything like that was was said, but then go on a ten minute um you know tirade about how um you know it was offensive yeah I mean like i said it, it is it is a betrayal i think of diplomatic principles that goes much much deeper than the the individual comments that were said. the French are few. Curious about it, I was speaking to a friend in the diplomatic service in France yesterday. They are livid about it, and if we think this is going to help us going forward with trying to iron out problems in the treaties, then of course it doesn't. It does mm. exactly the opposite.
0: Um, as you were just saying, you think you think it will be ironed out. We're not going to get uh, the actual sausage war um the you know the the notion that we 're going to get a trade war how well, unlikely is that look
1: I say this and I repeat at the technical level, so mm. I know that the people involved in these conversations and these negotiations and trying to draft the legal text, they are doing their best to find a pragmatic solution to these issues, but then it moves to leader level, and what mm. we 've seen this week is a real souring of relations at leader level. So, you know, Macron will be one of the people that you are hoping says okay effectively to a rejigging of the deal that the UK signed six months ago. And Macron is not going to be charitably inclined to do that after this weekend, is he? Especially with an an election coming up, especially with a domestic audience of his own to play Mm. to. So, I mean, who knows what's going to happen?
0: I was just highly amused at the uh, accusations the EU was being legalistic. I mean, it's a signed agreement. It is legalistic. Yes, and legalistic
1: or purist. Those yes. are the the two words that we're getting again and again, which basically translate as they're doing what it says in the contract and we're mm-hmm. not. Um I think the more important thing to come out of the G7 is actually the Clean Green Initiative. And I think that will get quite a lot of attention in the week ahead, or I hope it does. It's proposed basically as an alternative to China's Belt and Road programs. And it's important not only in environmental terms. In environmental terms, it actually doesn't go far enough. Anything that was uh, uh, in the communique doesn't go far enough. But as a diplomatic initiative, it is the West making a declaration that they're not going to allow China to have free reign over all those countries along the Silk Road belt. That it's been heavily investing in, uh, in ports and airports and uh, shipping routes. And, you know, it's been making this huge investment for a decade now, all along those countries. Um And I think this is quite an important declaration by the West that we are not going to allow you to have free reign anymore, and we're going to do it in an environmentally responsible way, whether they follow up or not, is anyone's guess.
0: Um, Some more stuff happening this week, Uh, more summits. There's a NATO summit on Tuesday. Joe Biden's expected to bury the uh, belligerence of the Trump year. So at least that's something to look forward to. And of course, football is going to continue dominating the week. Mm. Scotland versus the Czech Republic today. Scotland versus England for the first time in a major tournament since 1996 on Friday. I know. Uh, of, Of all the times for it to happen. Right big, now, big game, isn't it? Um, yeah, massive one, Trev. Massive, massive call, Trev. Yes, it's a huge game. Um, and you know, politicians love, you know, events like this. I can remember Sam waving waving Scottish flag uh, whenever he could. Whenever uh, Andy Murray did anything at all, can you see Sturgeon hammering the Scotland England uh, fixture on Friday?
1: Um, I I don't see why not. Uh, f- international football tournaments are probably the only occasion uh, where it's seen universally as universally okay to be nationalist (laughs) and so you would expect both Johnson and uh, Sturgeon who have nationalist um, roots to make the most of it. Um, I I think what happened in the first England game was very interesting in terms of the booing for mm-hmm. players taking the knee being really very, very tiny in the stadium. It was stadium. really drowned out by the applause,
0: and that I found that really encouraging. Yes,
1: yeah. I, I, I found that very hopeful. Uh, look, as with everything in football, as you know very well, um, it all will be rosy while teams perform well, and all will come to a head if teams perform badly, so... The the results will affect the mood
0: yeah and the the political conclusion that's drawn is always you know we beat San Marino 1-0 global Britain we can do anything <laughs> and uh, you know uh, we get beat by anybody a little bit more uh, formidable and football what's football never heard of it anyway what about the cricket moving on you know it's uh, yeah I mean I, I I am thankful that the G7 meant we didn't get to see any pictures well, of it, Boris Johnson in a plastic cross of St George hat with cross of St George boxing gloves or whatever else he had planned w-
1: with the further complication this here that you have a a very vocal, very politically active manager and several very vocal, very politically active players Mm. um, that creates a a slight peril that if you wrap yourself in those kinds of sentiment, they may turn out on Twitter and Instagram and say, not in my name, mate.
0: Well, this is the great thing. the, The England players are kind of creating that alternative vision of England that the opposition has failed to do it in politics. Know, it's like I this: is, you look at these guys; they're young, they're smart, they've got, um, you know, they've got convictions. They're willing to stand up. Marcus for them, it's Rashford for prime minister? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're you know, they're, they're a cracking bunch. So, yeah. yeah. Um, a couple of other things that are happening this week. Um, one to keep an eye out for if you're not watching the football: the DCMS committee has got the former BBC director generals Lord Hall and Lord Burt and the current one Tim Davy. All in, and they're t- going to be talking about the Princess Diana caper. So there's going to be more kicking for the BBC. So, you know, if you don't like mm. football, that, that'll yeah. be fun for you. And finally, it's going to be changeover week in some of our favourite governments. We've got the new government in Israel. Uh, Netanyahu's out after 12 years. It's, um, I would be I would worry about venturing opinions on this, but when you've got a far-right nationalist, Naftali Bennett, as Prime Minister, who's then going to hang o- hand over to a centrist after two years, and there's an Arab-Israeli in that coalition, This means, is this a measure just of exactly how much they hated
1: Netanyahu? Well, look, I mean, they needed a vote of confidence for this to happen, and they got it in the parliament, but it was razor thin. It was Mm. 60 votes to 59, and that that gives you an idea of how fragile this coalition is. So um, Netanyahu, even though he's saying he will go on, I suspect will be replaced in the next couple of months. And who replaces him will be quite key because if his party go for a more right wing person, that might be quite tempting to some of the right wing elements in this cobbled together coalition. If they go for some more centrist person, that might be, you know, quite a, 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 an attraction to some of the more, more centrist elements of the coalition. And vice versa. So if they go for a right-wing person, that might be a, a, a sort of provocation to some of the centrist elements of the coalition. So all of that, that you know, the pressure points, they are many and they are complicated, and it will shake down in the next uh, few months. And I would be amazed if there's not another election in Israel by the end of the year.
0: The the nature of the coalition and the huge spread of it and the fact that it's everybody right across the spectrum, it really reminded me of, you know, in The Simpsons where they formed the Honourable Order of No Homers, and it's like, everybody can join except Homer. It's like, this is the government of no Benjamins. It's, you know, it's exactly the same, like the Stonecutters. Finally, uh, it's also farewell to one of our show favourites, Arlene Foster, is uh, finally exiting
1: this the stage what's happening there with very similar wrangling um uh, predicted to go on in stormont this coming week actually because um, uh, edwin poots has taken on taken uh, on her position as leader of the dup but uh, he's he doesn't qualify to take over as first minister mm. so They've nominated a a man called Paul Givan. Um, He needs Sinn Fein support. So, what happens is if Arlene Foster resigns today by a personal statement to the assembly, as most people expect her to do, um, then what happens is Michelle O'Neill also loses her position as deputy first minister because it's a jointly held held position so so effectively stormont becomes headless until it gives its assent to a new person put forward by the dup and uh, there are the usual rows brewing about uh, uh, you know language teaching at school etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but the real issue is that, you know, there is still a big element in the DUP that is uh, loyal to Arlene Foster and that really dislikes the way she was knifed. Um, and they're not uh, uh, happy about Poots Taking over and that side of the that more conservative side of the party taking over, so that means another period of instability. I suspect with Stormont not operating, which is highly um, relevant at this precise moment when we're trying to sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol, and when the the input from Stormont is likely to be key. Well, they need somebody who's skilled at negotiating coalition politics
0: and are fairly ruthless. And Benjamin Netanyahu's got some time <laughs> on his hands now. So I think you were got- going to
1: suggest Naomi. Well, she could do it, but Netanyahu... So she can basically we, just do the voice, and she's very exactly. She's very into her uh, coalitions.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Well, I just, one of the advantages with Netanyahu, Netanyahu, of course, is he's not Protestant, and he's not Catholic, so he's kind of, a you know, he can work quite well with everybody, I'm sure. Alex, thank you for getting up early in the morning to explain the excitement of the week ahead. My pleasure. Listeners, thanks for listening. If you'd like to back us for making podcasts like this, uh, you can do that on Patreon. Uh, go to Patreon Bunker Podcast where you can get the podcast early you can get exciting merchandise and all sorts of other nice things in the meantime, thanks for listening uh, we'll be back tomorrow with the panel show see you then, bye bye The Bunker Daily is produced and presented by Andrew Harrison who is speaking to Alex andrey assistant producers of Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofranerovic and audio productions from me, Robin Lieber The Bunker's theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.